Welcome everybody to the London School of Economics at this event, which is uh, hosted by the Economics Department and the Center for Macroeconomics. I'm Wouter Den Haan. It's uh, my privilege to introduce this evening's speaker. Uh, but first, a couple of uh, announcements. So after our speaker's lecture, there will be some time for Q&A. The event is going to be done at 8 o'clock at the latest. And uh, then I always ask whether you can turn your mobile either off or on silent. And I always ask that, and it still happens now and then that somebody forgot and then embarrasses himself. And then for those of you guys who want to use Twitter, the hashtag is LSE China, which is also on there. And the plan is to record this event, and if everything goes well, it should be, able, uh, should be available on the LSE uh, events website. So this evening we are very grateful to have my uh, colleague, K.U. Jin. Uh, she got her PhD from Harvard, and she has been at the LSE since she graduated, except for the time when she was visiting Yale. Her research focuses uh, on international economics, and in particular capital flows. But she has worked on other topics too, like the one-child policy in China and what that meant for savings rate. Uh, but in addition to publishing in prestigious academic journals, uh, newspapers have picked up on her research, and she's appeared on uh, television programs like Newsnight. And there's not many of my colleagues who can say the same thing. So welcome me in uh, our guest, Gay uh, Jin. So the date and title of this presentation was determined sometime uh, last year, and a lot of things has happened uh, since then, especially regarding China. So it's never more timely than now to talk about the potential risks to the Chinese economy. Now, concerns about China has sent shock waves uh, through the stock markets around the world, and shorting China has once again uh, taken center stage. This list includes Texan cowboy hedge fund manager Kyle Bass and also our very own uh, George Soros. And while everyone around the world is concerned about China, China is more concerned about Donald Trump. <laughs> but there is some case to be, uh, there's a case for to be alarmed. Here is industrial production in China, which is definitely slowing down, downward trend. Uh, China's rising debt levels is uh, often a central uh, topic. Um, there are some signs of also a banking fragility. And property markets are adjusting downwardly. And of course, not to ignore the massive capital outflows, potential loss of reserves, a major potential uh, devaluation of the RMB, and very anemic growth. Now, no one trusts the numbers, right? Which is a pretty bad thing for the Chinese government because anything that the Chinese government does, you know, for instance, if they do devalue an exchange rate, people will say, oh, actually, China's economy must be doing even worse than it actually is because no one can trust the data. So there's a lot of fears about what's going on uh, in China right now. Now, some people predict China's collapse for a living. So... This is uh, 
Richard, uh, no, Gordon, Gordon Chang in 2001, the coming collapse of China. By the way, this is not the first time. In the mid-1990s, there have been quite a few um, people calling for the imminent meltdown of China. So 2001, he comes up with this book called The Coming Collapse of China, uh, in which he says, the end of the modern Chinese state is near. The People's Republic has five years, perhaps ten, before it falls, and this book tells why. The New York Times is pretty convinced, um, uh, citing his um, you know, reasons of uh, industries being bankrupt, banking systems sits on a mountain of unrecognized bad debts, its agriculture is primitive, pollution is out of control, and government interference and corruption are killing off a number of new business ventures. That's 2001. He doesn't stop. Uh, the coming collapse of China 2012 edition. Um, he did admit, though, that his prediction was wrong, arguing that he was off only by one year. Instead of 2011, the mighty Communist Party of China will fall in 2012. Bet on it. This is probably what he was also looking at uh, when calling for China's uh, you know, banking meltdown. China's NPLs, non-performing loans to GDP ratio, was very high in the 2000s. Indeed, this was definitely a concern for um, a large group of people calling for uh, the meltdown of the Chinese system. What they didn't realize is that the government did a lot of things, including inject uh, you know, reserves into the, to these, uh, these companies, setting up four asset management companies to liquidate these assets. And of course, there was always the panacea to all economic malaise, which is good economic growth. Right. Today, should we worry about NPLs? Well, it doesn't seem that China is way off. I mean, more worrying is the U.S. and Japan compared to Korea and India. China's NPL as a percent of GDP is still uh, tolerable. So uh, when Kyle Bass mentions that uh, you know, China is going to see the biggest adjustment of the world's greatest imbalance and triple crises, there's a little bit of room for improvement. Um, so I don't want to focus on the cyclical issues that concern China today. You read about those in newspapers. You hear about them on TV. You know what's going on. A lot of people have a lot of opinions. They don't have a lot of data. They don't let data get in the way of their opinions. We're going to try to uh, you know, avoid that mistake. And what I really want to focus on is some of potentially the fundamental challenges to the Chinese economy. What we have seen so far may be mere symptoms of a more fundamental problem. So what are the fundamental and clear and present challenges that the econ economy is, is facing? But to put that in the right perspective, let me remind everyone that China's growth experience is slightly different from other developing countries, um, what I call reform-driven growth cycles. Now, if you look at the GDP per capita growth over uh, the years 1978 until 2014, now 1978 is the mark of the first wave of uh, reforms, when Deng Xiaoping uh, started uh, the, the, the wave of economic reforms. Growth has not always been rosy. It's been up and down. There have been cycles. Okay, so the first wave of growth in the 1980s, um, many of them are agricultural reforms and also setting up special economic zones in the coastal areas, uh, welcoming FDI, uh, opening up to trade, embracing uh, new economic structures of openness. Now, that kind of wore off after a period of time, and 
Of course, it hit a really major low, almost 2% in 1989. Of course, that coincided with our political um, uh, event, uh, which is a Tiananmen Square event. But in 1990s, in the early 1990s, growth picked up again, and that was characterized by the mass privatization and the reduction of the state sector. Okay, so that led to to pretty rapid growth, which again started to falling by the late 1990s, in which case, what did China do? It joined the WTO. So here's you know, where they started accumulating current account surpluses, trade surpluses, and growth picked up again. And now it's slowing down. So you know, there's some, some notion that China, the, way, the, the reason the sources of growth for China um, is not really kind of uh, conforming to the traditional uh, 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 growth uh, experiences and often driven by reforms. So the question now that China faces is, what is the next wave of reforms? Are there going to be some critical reforms that can push back or at least maintain growth rates uh, for a certain period of time after this? Now, one of the biggest misconceptions about China's growth experience is that it's all based on capital accumulation and investment. Investment was definitely very high. Okay, that said, but looking more carefully a little bit at the data, since 1978, okay, between 1970 and 2007, astonishingly, 78% of uh, the per capita GDP growth was due to productivity, okay, not to capital accumulation. Now, if you decompose that a little bit and separate between the state and non-state sectors, that looks a little bit different, but here, if you carefully look at the data, a lot of the growth has been driven by productivity. Now, China-style productivity, productivity because of structural transformations, of moving state sector resources to private sector resources was a major contribution to economic uh, growth and productivity growth. Now, it is true that the state sector benefited a great deal in terms of capital and investment because they had cheap access to to loans from uh, state-owned banks. Um, And it's very clear that uh, productivity growth was much more rapid for private sectors, on average 4.56% compared to the state sector, which was only about 1.52%. Now, the rapid reduction of the state sector created, you know, uh, unleashed resources for the private sector, which helped create 420 million jobs and absorb all of these uh, laborers out of agriculture. And absent private sector productivity growth, GDP per capita growth would have been almost four percentage point lower annually. So here is the evidence that private sector have been driving force, have been a driving force for the Chinese economy. And we're going to come back to this. Okay? So reforms uh, stimulate economic growth in China, and economic growth has been, uh, you know, has been uh, driven a great deal by productivity growth. Now, the Chinese government has recently come out of this concept called the new normal. The new normal of slow growth, slower growth, uh, new normal of consumption-based rather than export-based growth. I love how these, these terminologies are being thrown around these days so, so often. The new normal this, new normal that. I'm not sure this is the right way to characterize uh, China's uh, current uh, economic situation and whether it really offers a kind of distraction or even potentially just a psychological appease for the, the general public in China. I think 
the present challenge is, is pretty clear. Okay, so for a long period of time, the reforms focused on reducing or removing real distortions in the economy, you know, reallocating resources outside of agriculture, reallocating resources from state to private. But one of the major distortions that have been left barely untouched is the financial distortions. So the number one uh, challenge is reforming the financial uh, markets, and we'll see why that is so important. Okay, so in terms of the financial market, we're faced with one enduring puzzle, is that there's absolutely no relationship between stock market performance and economic growth in China. Now, the first, uh, uh, this figure shows you um, the extraordinary economic performance of uh, China compared to other countries. So since the stock market was established in the early 1990s, uh, the real growth rate of China, or the real, real, real uh, GDP of China, has grown by a factor of eight. Since 2000, it's grown by a factor of about three, a little bit more three, and evidently much larger than uh, India or Brazil or U.S. or Japan. This is real GDP in large countries. However, despite this phenomenal growth, its stock market has been the worst performing stock market around the world. Okay? So here we see that combined. It's true that with economic growth, the Chinese stock market did grow. So combined, the Chinese stock market is now ranked number two in the world, okay, above Japan. Um, The Shanghai Index was, uh, uh, Shanghai Stock Exchange was, uh, established in 1991, and uh, indeed right now, as of now, it's even overtaken Japan to be the second largest. But in terms of the real value of the stock index, it's remained the same since 1990. It has seen no no growth. Uh, The turnover rates are very high for these stock exchanges, uh, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, uh, which uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, points to the fact that there's still a lot of speculative trading going on uh, in these markets. Now, despite the phenomenal growth of China, if you look at the buy and hold returns of listed stocks among these large countries, you would see China being the worst performing stock market, including even worse than Japan. So if you started out with one um, portfolio weighted $1 starting from 2000, uh, buying a portfolio of Chinese stocks, you would have been left with about 62 cents by the end of uh, 2012, a loss of 38%. Even India and Brazil would have seen the stock prices uh, increase uh, to two by the end of that period. And so China has done extremely poorly, the worst among the crowd. There's some really strange thing going on, which is this disconnect between uh, stock market performance and economic growth. That's one of the enduring puzzles. Now, let's compare the returns of holding stocks to some alternative uh, savings vehicles. Now, let's say that most of Chinese savings, and there's a lot of Chinese savings, still go to, uh, into bank deposits. So the bar graph shows you um, the, the real returns for these different uh, deposits, bank deposits. If in 2000 you roll over your bank deposits, by the end of 2013, you would have lost only 20% of uh, that dollar. If you held it in stocks, you would have lost 40%. Where is the economic growth reflected you know, in, in, these, um, in these financial products? 
So this is looking at the correlation between economic growth and stock uh, returns, five-year rolling windows until 2012. Now, for more, uh, you can't see this, but for more normal countries, you know, the U.S. sees a 50% correlation between growth and stock returns, Japan 65%, Germany 85%, Brazil 43%, Russia um, 75%, and China much lower and statistically insignificant, almost no correlation. We are in the presence, great presence of India. That's comforting. Um, finally, a commonality between these two countries. Uh, no, no correlation, no statistically uh, significant correlation between uh, stock performance and economic growth. Now, that's got to be somewhat puzzling. Now, if households are either putting their savings into these uh, bank deposits, which basically have earned zero real returns over this period, or holding in stocks and losing a significant portion of it, um, one wonders where, uh, you know, where the, this wealth is apportioning in, in, the, in the household sector. So it's important to understand why, right? What's behind this puzzle? It turns out the explanation involves basically three factors. The first is who gets listed, there's a selection bias on who gets listed. It turns out that not the best firms are not the ones that are list listed. They're not representative of the Chinese economy. The second has to do with the IPO and delisting, so entry and exit of these firms, the mechanisms, and the adverse selection that it creates, the distortion, distorted incentives, and also the subsequent bad performance of those who remain listed on the stock market. And the third have to do with some insider trading, um, tunneling activities, and pursuing a large and inefficient uh, investment. And this draws on a very uh, great body of work of um, Franklin Allen and uh, co-authors um, in, in their studies on the Chinese financial market. So... There is a selection bias. There is a, key, there is a distinct difference between listed firm performance and unlisted firm performance. Okay? So here we're graphing the return on assets for listed firms and those of unlisted firms but matched by their size because listed firms tend to be, in general, larger. And you can see that for most years, listed firms perform worse than matched, size-matched non-listed firms. Okay? Um, so, who are the listed firms? First of all, the listed firms in 20, uh, 2014, all these years, contribute to less than 20% of total corporate income in China. Okay? Less than 20 per, they, the listed firms contribute less than 20% of total income. And you can see that SOEs, state-owned enterprises, their share in total income has de been declining over these years. Now, um, the unlisted, uh, the listed and unlisted, sorry, the unlisted, the private firms uh, have been contributing most uh, of the income to the unlisted firms. So you can see that there's a distinction between those who get listed and the bad performance of uh, the, uh, the stock uh, market can be largely attributed to the fact that many of them are SOEs. Now, it's true that 80% of these listed companies were former SOEs. Okay, actually, the, the stock market was initially set up to help SOEs get funding, raise funding. Okay. So um, there's a big selection bias on who gets listed. 
Also, another piece of evidence is looking at the correlation between uh, growth and um, the, the, uh, the type of firms. And you can see that, of course, uh, the correlation uh, between uh, growth and all corporate sectors is positive, 0.6. Okay, so corporate firms are doing well. It's correlated with economic growth. But that is largely driven by oops, non-SOEs and also unlisted firms. If you look at the correlation between SOE firms and listed uh, firms, there's no correlation, no statistically significant correlation between uh, uh, their uh, growth and uh, you know, GDP growth. So most of the net income contribution is driven by private and unlisted firms. Now, the first problem is the listing process, right? So in China, we have um, something called a registration-based approval system um, by which each IPO must be approved by the, the CSRC. And uh, now there are explicit quotas on how many listings, which are allocated to different regions. Okay? Firms also must sh also show profits in three consecutive years, so there's quite a bit of stringent um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, standards for who gets to be listed, among other financial requirements. And as I mentioned, initial purpose of setting up the stock market was to help the privatization of the SOE. So there's quite a lengthy and stringent process for getting listed. Now, <clears throat> three of the most well-known Chinese companies in the world, BAT, the internet giants, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, they're all listed, except they're all listed abroad. Right, so there's something about this listing process. <clears throat> so it is, um, it is quite common that when firms get listed right after the IPO, which is, you know, date zero, that there will be a drop on the returns on assets. Now, this is true for other countries as well, okay? Except in China, it's particularly severe that the return on asset drops from around 12% to 6% right after, uh, you know, uh, listing on the IPO. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. Now, other countries experience that similarly because often these firms time their, uh, the, you know, time their best year, best performance year to get uh, listed, to, be, to take public. So there's a bit of a drop in all other countries. But what's going on in China? What's going on in China is potentially a few things. One is which is earnings management. Now, these firms, in order to be listed, are ready to exhaust their resources years be before in order to meet some of these stringent uh, requirements for listing. Okay? Often, uh, pursuing short-term goals and sacrificing uh, long-term growth objective just to be listed. So this is the reason why a lot of these firms in China can see a substantial drop in their performance right after uh, the IPO. Now, the second problem is that bad firms also don't exit. There's a problem with the delisting process. Now, only 1% of Chinese companies are delisted every year compared to the 10 to 20% uh, on average for other uh, countries. Every year, fewer than 10 firms delist due to negative earnings. Why is that? Well, they have a valuable shell, right? Because it's so difficult to get listed. The process is so uh, difficult to keep that shell and inject another company. Um, so part of this bad performance of the stock market is due to the fact that many firms stay. 
stay on, when they should have exited. Okay. Now, once these firms are listed, um, it seems that listed firms make much larger but less efficient investment, um, uh, large-scale investment, uh, while you know they have lower net cash flows. So, for instance, if you look at the capital expenditure la- to lagged assets, it's at 8% in China compared to only 3.5% in the U.S., and yet they still have uh, lower net cash flows. Um, also, controlling shareholders uh, divert assets, okay, sometimes kind of providing loans to subsidiaries or related party transactions, so the activity of tunneling, and also a bit of uh, insider trading. So these are some of the reasons why, uh, you know, the Chinese stock market has diverged from the economic growth path, and also, you know, the kind of selection process of um, listing and delisting create adverse selection. Now, why is stock market reform is so crucial for China? A lot of the things that, the problems that we face in the Chinese economy, the things that you've seen, the graphs that you've seen, the things that we talk about, uh, the stock market might have contributed to some of that. First of all, because of the lack of good investment vehicles, a lot of these resources flow into the real estate. Okay? So the real estate and the stock market is often moving in opposite ways. The stock market has performed so badly in the last 20 years, a lot of these assets, you know, either you hold it in banking deposits or you put it in, in housing. So that led to a quick rise in the housing market. Then the government decided to cool down on the housing market, and then all these funds went back to the stock market, which uh, is the reason that it experienced this large increase since 2006. Last summer, may I remind everyone that the stock market drop in China amount to nine times the size of Greece. Okay. Um, so these kind of back and forth uh, kind of, you know, the, is causing, causing this volatility. And um, part of the reason is that there's just not good uh, investment vehicles. Stock market has been inefficient in China and ineffective in allocating capital and resources to the Chinese economy, creating real distortions. Okay, and a large misallocation of capital. It also deprives the sources of funding for certain sectors, consumption, services, some of these booming sectors, high-tech sectors, which are the drivers of uh, growth and innovation in China. And, of course, it affects households, right? How do households... Um, uh, how, how is this kind of the, the, the wealth that China has created accrue to the households? Well, certainly not through their invest, financial investments, okay, either holding bank deposits or putting into stocks. And the lack of diversification offered by the stock market um, increases risk and potentially is part of the reason why Chinese household saving is so high at a glaring 30% um, uh, of their disposable income. Okay, the fact that they cannot diversify risk uh, leads to potentially higher uh, household saving. So as you can see, the financial distortions affect the real economy. And many of the symptoms that we see uh, can be at least alleviated by, uh, by improving the stock markets. Now, China's financial markets still dominated by banks. Okay, so even more so, uh, even though that's true among most emerging markets, it's even more, more true in China. So, for instance, bank credit to GDP ratio is about 111% compared to an average of 40% among other emerging markets. Um, 
bank credit is even more important than the stock market, despite the fact that the stock market is already really large in China compared to other emerging markets, but also comparatively less efficient uh, given the size of the NPLs, and also commercial uh, banks face uh, tighter regulations. Okay, so that's an overview of uh, China's financial market situation. Now, in terms of bank loans, okay, so the majority of the funding comes from bank loans, most of it has gone to manufacturing industries and state-owned enterprises. Okay, so industrial and commercial. These are the first two columns. Third column is some government infrastructure uh, programs. And the last are going into private firms. So you can see that, you know, we've heard this many times, but uh, state-owned enterprises have a much easier access uh, to state, uh, to bank loans than private firms. So private firms cannot rely on uh, bank loans as a major source of funding. Um, as a result, there has been a large misallocation of capital. If you look at the capital-labor ratio between the state and the private, the state is substantially higher than the private. Uh, investment GDP ratio increased substantially from 24% to 45% over this period, 1978 to 2008. But the growth rate for non-state or private sector has been only about 2.5% compared to 6.43% for, for the state. And especially after 2008, um, a lot of this, you know, kind of uh, credit expansion has gone to state-owned enterprises. State absorbs half of the investment while contributing to less than 20% of today's GDP. That is a major uh, distortion and misallocation of capital. So the puzzle number two is, how did China manage to grow despite such repressive financial markets? Despite the fact that the private sector, which we've seen, have contributed so much to China's productivity growth, so much to China's growth, overall growth, and so much to employment, how did they manage to grow while not being able to have formal financing channels? Well, the answer is alternative financing. And um, as you see, the alternative financing channels uh, as well as the shadow banking, have been kind of the source that has promoted uh, these growth, the growth of these Chinese firms. Indeed, the, uh, the private firms have um, become more and more important in overtaking the state firms in terms of the contribution to the GDP. So industrial output by sectors, um, uh, you know, have uh, way overtaken uh, the state sectors, which is the, the, the bar lines, over these years. So uh, in the 1980s, uh, in 1980, private sector contribution was minuscule. By 2000, uh, by the end of 2000, I think, uh, the industrial output of state, 2011, industrial output of state sector contributed to less than 15%. And also, they are uh, the ones that are creating employment. Okay, so now about 70 something percent of uh, the employment is employed by private firms, and the, the employment growth rate uh, created by private firms is around 5.5 percent on average. So this is, you know, the key to driving China's economy. I don't really want to call this a transition from, uh, you know, exports to consumption. I think it's just a gross mischaracterization of what's really going on. But these are the firms that need to thrive in China. They have been pushing uh, China's uh, growth despite such adverse circumstances. It's even more impressive that they can uh, perform so well um, given the, the, the kind of lack of financial um, uh, resources for them. So to push China's growth uh, involves unleashing further the dynamism of the private sectors. 
So what does alternative financing mean? Well, during the startup phase, now this is the evidence drawn from uh, surveys, um, is that they rely a lot on family and friends. Uh, since 20, 2010, uh, there's, there was a created something called peer-to-peer -peer lending, uh, amounting to about $1.6 billion now. P2P, Chinese people say P2P all the time now. You hear that on the street, everyone is saying P2P, including the mom and pop shops, um, P2P. So uh, that was introduced by the government. And um, once a firm is established, 60% on average of these firms rely on internal financing okay, to continue. There are also even illegal channels, smuggling, bribery, insider trading, speculations of financial markets and real estate in the beginning, underground or unofficial businesses to accumulate seed capital. And once they're in the growth phase, uh, financing uh, relied less on bank loans and more from private uh, credit agencies and trade credits. The rise of shadow banking um, is uh, kind of reflects the, the real demand uh, for capital, the real demand for funds that are not met by bank loans uh, in China. So this is a graph of the tr trust company as a percent of GDP and the World Wealth uh, Management Products, WMP, as a percent of GDP between 2006 and 2014. As you can see, since 2009, there has been a rapid growth to almost 25%. Okay, so what explains the rise of shadow banking? A lot of it is partly to uh, kind of uh, circumvent regulatory requirements. So in the Chinese economy, the funding demand is much higher than the supply of bank loans due to these regulatory uh, restrictions. So this is a way to circumvent these regulatory requirements. Also, uh, there have been restrictions on real estate loans, and those fall short of meeting the demand for the local government uh, financing platforms and demand in general in the real estate. Okay, so these uh, can only be financed through trust loans. Now, Chinese households are demanding a slightly higher uh, rate of return than the real deposit uh, interest rate that they've seen, almost uh, zero return over this period. And um, banks have to meet their loan-to-demand uh, uh, requirements uh, by raising uh, funds through the WMPs, uh, basically going from something like 2.5 trillion uh, in 2005 to, uh, to 9.5 trillion RMB um, uh, by the end of 2014. So a massive uh, increase in um, WMP. So shadow banking has partly supported the growth of these private firms, which could not so reliably rely on the formal financial uh, financing sectors. Now, the question is, um, how can we overcome, how can this mechanism, informal financing channels, really work in the absence of uh, legal and contractual enforcements? Right? That's, a, that's a question that is always coming back to the notion of institutions. We need good institutions to grow. Institutions is key. But somehow China has been able to work this out, at least uh, for a certain period of time, uh, without developing any kind of good institutions. Now, again, from uh, a different collection of evidence, it seems that uh, reputation, trust, and these kind of social values and social trust have been the dominating um, kind of, uh, you know, the, the reasons why this can be sustained. So absent religion, the Confucian social values um, is seen to have the highest level of social trust among a group of 40 developing and developed countries. 
So evidence that reputation relationships make, make financing channels and governance mechanism actually work. And there's also competition uh, in the market, so only the strongest firms survive. Now, a survey evidence asking, uh, you know, as CEOs and executives in the case, in the event that the firm uh, fails, what are they most concerned about? 100% of them said reputational loss. Only 60% of them said um, economic losses. Okay, so let's see how long this, this kind of thing can last, the social uh, trust and relationships. So in terms of going forward, what are the, some of the key financial reforms um, that China has to undertake in order to realize the next wave of growth? Uh, one is uh, helping the households. You know, a lot of, we're talking about a lot of the loans and these borrowing for, for firms, but household debt, by the way, household debt in China is one of the lowest in the world. Okay, because of the large credit constraint for the household. So one way is to increase consumer loans, which was only 1% um, of all loans in 1998 to 17% in 2013, still quite small. Privatizing banks, uh, listing these banks, enhances efficiency. Now, four of the 10 largest banks today are Chinese in the world. Okay? They're listed, including ICBC. There could be more competition through the entry of private and foreign banks. Um, and meanwhile, government, still being the majority owner uh, of these banks, can enhance regulation of large financial institutions and prevent potentially banking and uh, uh, financial crises. And the last is uh, related to corporate governance. Okay? How do we enforce bankruptcy laws? Some of these are quite critical in pushing through financial reforms. The key here is the financial distortions do affect the real economy. Okay? We see an increasing household savings rate, a declining share of household income, a large buildup of credit, a large misallocation of capital away from the private and more absorbed by the state. All of these are kind of just symptoms of some fundamental problems in the financial markets. Now, financial market reforms have not really been um, pushed along at all. So where there are challenges represent um, the, the uh, opportunities as well. Now, the financial markets has aided what I call a distorted growth model, a vicious growth model. So I think that part of China's problem in the last 20 years, it's not so much an imbalance between consumption and investment and export, but it's more an imbalance between households and governments, households and, uh, and, and corporates. Why? Because the Chinese government has been pushing this industrialization model, making China the factory of the world. Okay? And indeed it did. But there were substantial costs associated with that, and it's a systemic problem. Okay? You have to create this system, a system of distorted uh, economic models. So where does it start? It starts with financial repression, which we have seen. Um, large forced savings in Chinese banks, earning zero uh, real return for Chinese households. Okay, that kept the cost of capital very low. There was also uh, wage suppression, in which case the wage growth was substantially lower than the product, labor productivity growth in manufacturing industry, so wages were suppressed. All of this lowered the cost of capital for the firms, and that led to a suppression of households. Now, this is quite a striking figure. This is the share of household disposable income as a share of nominal GDP, and you can see that since 1990, it's been declining, almost from 70% to 60%. Now, uh, putting things into perspective, 
In most other advanced economies, the household share is constant and it's around 80%. So somehow, household, Chinese households are losing out of this GDP race. Okay? Um, the benefits of economic growth in China has not been fairly accrued to the household sector. Of course, once you suppress the households and you subsidize these firms, often large SOEs and industrial farms, that leads to the obvious uh, result of very low consumption, um, high investment and exports, you know, along with exchange, part of exchange rate manipulation, uh, capital controls, um, you can uh, kind of subsidize these firms to export to the rest of the world uh, in industrial goods. Now, once there's low consumption, of course, to, to reach the target of the GDP growth set by the, the, you know, the government, central government, you have to do more and more of this, the financial repression. So the vicious loop uh, continues. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's a, it's a system. It's a systemic hole. This, this distortion is a distortionary model. And each of these things and each of what you have to complain about the Chinese economy are only mere symptoms of a problematic whole, including environmental uh, considerations, including uh, the slow employment growth. Because when you promote um, industrial and manufacturing firms, these are not the firms, these are not the companies that create the most employment. It's more like firms like services, right? So everything someone has to complain about, the China fit kind of in this distortionary whole. And this is the problem. The problem with this model is that to break the model, you've got to break the system, the systemic whole. Breaking small parts here and there, unfortunately, doesn't work in China. So, you know, we're going to talk about reforms, but when there has been some announcement of some reforms here and there, they're often, you know, loosening the screws here and they're tightening the screws here, there. That's not going to be very effective. The problem or the challenge to these reforms is to break this distortionary hole, to break this model, to reform the financial sector. And that's kind of um, what the Chinese government is facing in terms of uh, um, very low anemic growth. So we know that the answer to China's problem by looking at this growth experience uh, in the last uh, 20 or 30 years is that reforms have to be pushed through, right? But now, what are seemingly economic problems are no longer just economic. They're political, and they're also social. What's stopping economic reforms from being pushed along are the lack of political reforms. And what's stopping political reforms from uh, happening is the consideration uh, for, for social matters. So, for instance, Breaking down state-owned monopolies is very important. But what if the state-owned enterprise employs 40,000 people? Unemployment is also a consideration. Moreover, social conflicts are churning and building into potential social movement. And this hinders the ability of the government to act and to promote change. So to move along these economic reforms really requires fundamental political reforms and politically operating oneself is very difficult. Why are p reforms so difficult uh, to push through now? Now, first of all, we had a major ideological revolution in 1978 where Deng Xiaoping said, everything is now, from now on, only about economics. Whoever championed economic growth was promoted, was uh, protected, and if needed, pardoned for whatever reason, okay? Anyone that pushed along uh, economic growth. That was the first ideological shift. 
What we really need in China is a second ideological shift, which is political reforms and the development of institutions. It's not so much that what's going to drive China's growth going forward is you know, promoting consumption, which I think has a lot of structural uh, reasons why consumption is low, not something that can be resolved in the short term, but actually promoting a growth model based on efficiency, innovation, and competition, which requires good institutions. So if you talk to some of the Chinese leaders, you would recognize that what's really stopping them now is first and foremost an ideological shift, which is what needs to happen uh, right now. And the reason that political reforms are so, so important for economic reforms is that there's some major conflicts of interest or there's major misalignment of interest when uh, kind of going after these economic reforms. To give you an example, okay, so what, what are the main economic reforms that need to be done uh, apart from the financial reforms? For instance, breaking down state-owned uh, monopolies. So who's in charge of breaking down state-owned monopolies? Well, there's an entity called SASEC. Okay? The entity that is in charge of breaking down state-owned monopolies is exactly the entity in charge of all state-owned enterprises. Their raison d'etre is, relies on the power of SOEs. So to break them down, to break the SOEs down, is to break themselves, is to weaken themselves. Right? So what kind of incentives do they have um, to, um, to kind of weaken uh, their own power? Same thing with capital liberalization. Now, I, I personally believe that opening up reforms are fundamentally different from domestic reforms. What China really needs is domestic reforms for economic growth. But uh, one of the uh, opening up reforms is, uh, relates to capital account liberalization. Now, who's in charge of that? SAFE. Now, SAFE also controls all capital flows. They give the quotas and who gets to take money out and how much and when. Right? Now, by opening up capital markets, they lose that control. So they're kind of in a dilemma, in a quandary. Okay? To change is to actually weaken themselves. So there's some fundamental misalignment of interests and the communication between the top party leaders and those who are in charge of undertaking these reforms, there's quite a substantial gap. Also, reforms has to be systemic. They can't be just here and there. Otherwise, it's going to get blocked. Okay, you want to undertake a reform, you get blocked at the next level. So there has to be a change in the political system in terms of regulatory framework, in terms of legal framework, in terms of a whole system in order to actually make a real difference. This is why it's so difficult. The low-hanging fruits of just economic reforms are kind of over. That's what we were able to rely on since 1978. But now comes the hard part of operating on themselves. Um, so building institutions, which I believe is the next wave of, um, you know, the source of the next wave of growth in China, requires fundamental changes to the political and regulatory systems by overcoming vested interest um, and building a more efficient bureaucracy bound firmly by the rule of law, and then only then can reforms actually be pushed through. Okay, so China really needs a second ideological shift. So my conclusion is that economic woes are neither really economic or purely just economic, or are they fatal? Okay? There's some room for optimism, 
right? Urbanization is only halfway done. Now, service sectors are some of the most vibrant, uh, you know, represent the most vibrant sectors today. They create a lot of employment. There are many instances where we see examples of certain service sectors being liberalized, um, being highly efficient and productive. These include healthcare, education, media, etc. The question is, is the government going to lower the barriers of entry into these service sectors, right? Human capital. Now, I don't need to uh, share this with many of you in the room. You must, many of you are from the one-child policy generation. You know how your parents educated you, okay? Um, how much they spent on you. Um, by the way, now there's a two-children policy, so double that if you think you were expensive. This is, this is, this is definitely going to be a reason to stimulate consumption, no doubt, right? If not anything else. Um, every generation earns substantially, significantly more income than the previous generation. So we're worried about demographics and the threat of the Social Security, etc. But the younger generations are simply just much richer and much more productive. And plus we had the loosening of the one-child policy. Even coming back to some of the, uh, the short-term issues of a depreciating currency, massive capital outflows, um, government still has many more levers than other countries, okay, courtesy of state capitalism courtesy of the government ordering you to stop trading when needed, to buy offshore RMB, RMB when necessary, to expand fiscal monetary policy when needed, to consolidate balance sheet in the country if needed. Uh, the arsenal is still there to stop a near-term collapse, I believe. Okay? But if China delays any more of its reforms, uh, they may no longer be available. So if you ask me if I'm worried about a China collapse, the answer is no. Not in the short term. If you ask me what I'm really worried about, I'd say it's the Chinese society. It's social decay. It's a social conflict between the urban and the rural, between the private and uh, the state, among the different income groups. It's the fact that there's a significant large part, part of the uh, population that has uh, a lack of access to social and economic rights, even before political rights. It's the breakdown of meritocracy, and it's a lack of a moral code in a country where you know, there's no dominant religion. In this respect, perhaps Gramsci has an explanation. The old world is dying, and the new world struggles to be born. Now is a time of monsters. Now, it's quite impossible that a proud and patriotic Chinese citizen like myself would end on that note. Okay? invoking modern monstrosity in my own country. But what I simply want to say is that perhaps the elephant in the room is not the economic woes with which everyone is so obsessed. But maybe it's in terms of finding the right social values, the right values. You know, China has experienced an extraordinary fast growth rate, economic growth rate, but values haven't really quite caught up yet without explicating uh, what that means. So this is where China might be really in a transition of catching up uh, the values and regaining the Chinese ethos in a period of extraordinary growth. Now, on a more positive note, um, it's probably fair to say that in China, it's often crises that breed uh, better times or bring about better times, unlike in the West, where good times often breed crises. Uh, this, the flip side of the story is uh, invariably that if actually economic growth slows down even further, 
you can be sure that reforms will be pushed along. The government will have no choice, and they understand that the political legitimacy rests on the success of their reforms. Now, surely if all leaders were given uh, a copy of the novel The Leopard, there will be world peace. There will be world peace. Paraphrasing Lampedusa in his novel is the great notion that we have to change in order to remain the same. Thank you very much. So now there's some uh, time for Q&A. So what we're going to do is the following. We're going to collect a couple questions. And then if you have a question, wait until you get the microphone from one of the stewards. And then please try to limit yourself to uh, one question. Um, I see your hand, but... Uh, thanks, uh, Kayu. Uh, one question I had was, given your comment about how successful the economy beyond the repressive financial system and state-owned companies has been, does it matter? You know, is, is, can the shadow economy and the informal economy uh, that succeeded so well, does, doesn't the state economy just become less and less important? Or do you see some limit to that private sector dynamism? Questions? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Ronan Tynan. Um, first of all, thank you for a fascinating presentation, and particularly the way you zeroed in on the need for political reform in a very, um, dare I say, courageous way, actually, uh, because I have seen many presentations of people balk at that and drawing the obvious conclusion. So I, I apologize for being a little crude, uh, but just this evening I was tweeting about Caxon facing censorship now, and it is a bit worrying, Xi Jinping's determination to crack down. So one would be forced to conclude, based on your truly riveting presentation, may I say, that the omens look bleak if one looks at the party and the determination of the party to maintain not just existing control, but to deepen and intensify that control. Thank you. There's got to be some young people who have questions too, no? <laughs> in, the, in the back, in the back. Hi, uh, Dr. Ke Yu. My uh, question is about China's uh, central bank's monetary policy. So I'm wondering that so what's your comment on current China's central bank's monetary policy? Because it seems that uh, the central bank is uh, uh, tend to overshooting in uh, loosening its monetary policy to boost the economy, especially to lift the stock market. And uh, with so many uh, liquidity sloshing around in the economy, uh, there is a risk that uh, it ends up with only uh, inflating another wave of uh, property market uh, bubbles. So do you worry about the property market risk, and how do you comment on China's current monetary policy? Thank you. Should I start? Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you for all your uh, questions and a diverse set uh, of them. Um, now... 
I think it's a general phenomenon for emerging markets to rely a great deal more on alternative uh, financing channels uh, than the formal uh, kind of financial channels, uh, and in China in particular. But this is, this is also a phenomenon that's true for other countries as well. Is it sustainable? That's there. I think there's a the debate now. I, I I don't have a personal take on this, but some people believe that uh, developing institutions is quite costly in the beginning stages of development, and China's flexibility by having no, not the constraints of the legal uh, infrastructure promotes change and flexibility um, that actually the bad or you know the lack of these institutions has been actually good for these firms which are operating um, outside of that legal framework. So it's still an ongoing debate. I would imagine that at some point the legal infrastructure has to be set up. And this is where I also mentioned uh, why institutions is so important, not only on in terms of uh, uh, sourcing you know financing, but in terms of um, kind of promoting uh, innovation and um, uh, guaranteeing competition. So I think that it has to change, and I think it's actually part of uh, the government agenda to push through some of these aspects of um, uh, enforcing uh, legal, um, you know, improving the legal framework. Uh, on the political issue and political rights issue, now you're you're absolutely right in the sense that there's a, a more general, you know, general n nervousness uh, uh, in the country right now. Um, you know, even academics are being targeted right now. I think uh, if Walter, your office would be too big, <laughs> you know, in in China, and then we need to partition that so that uh, so that you know the head of um, the head of Tsinghua, Tsinghua, which is the best university in China, the head of Tsinghua uh, Business Schools, the dean, um, now his formal, former, former room is now just a storage for all his books while well, he's moved to a different uh, part of uh, a smaller office, smaller than mine, actually. So... Um, <laughs> So there, there is a sense of that, but let's not um, – I think the reason is that because the government is loosening uh, on certain fronts, they have to tighten on other fronts. That's, that's the way they think, okay? Uh, now, when you think about things like anti-corruption, the West has used this as a source of a major, you know, kind of bloodshed event where, you know, China's just doing something completely crazy, uh, you know, almost unprecedented in history. But – for the Chinese citizens, there's a 92% approval rate. This is actually going to continue. The anti-corruption campaign is going to continue because this is actually the only reform that they can point to that has actually been successful. This is what's going to guarantee the political legitimacy of this party. So in terms of other, because of, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, one of the deep concerns that I have is the social conflicts that are mounting and broiling, um, churning into a potential social, con social movement. This is not something to be ignored. Right. Well, everyone focuses on, on the economic problems. The social problems are not to be um, dismissed. So because of these social considerations, this is why they're tightening up the screws on certain fronts. So it's a balancing act. Um, and uh, I don't think that this is necessarily an indication that uh, we are taking many steps back and the political reforms are not going to... Uh, happen. I think it's already planted in their mind that there, are, there has to be certain political reforms that need to be taken place. The ideological, the idea about this ideological shift was when I was talking to one of the party uh, school members, getting the idea that that was kind of what was necessary as a first step. So, and I, I think the best indication is that actually, if economic conditions worsen, they will really have no choice, and they recognize that. 
about monetary policy, about the real estate bubble. So um, one of the graphs that I, I didn't show, which was in the end, is that if you look at the national level, there appears to be no housing price bubble. Now, if you look at Shenzhen, uh, if you look at Beijing and Shanghai, uh, there is a sense that there is uh, a property bubble. But we also understand why, right? Because you know, lack of uh, channels of investment for Chinese households meant that a lot of the resources went into the, the bubble. Now, the central bank's main problem, and there are many, but... Uh, um, one of the problems, as we've recently seen uh, with the stock market and uh, the, um, the exchange rate volatility, is a matter of communication. Okay, we understand how important communication is, uh, you know, for for the central bank in China. China is just learning uh, along the way. They did fire some really crucial people, though. I mean, the, you know, kind of uh, credit to them. They are definitely understanding uh, this the hard way. Um, in terms of monetary expansion, look, you know, the government has a mandate. It has to keep growth stable, right? So since, uh, you know, after 2008, especially with the slowing down of the world economy, it had to use different kind of levers, uh, including credit expansion, uh, to kind of uh, stimulate the Chinese economy. Now, this goes back to the problems of the financial market. A lot of these funds either just get channeled to the state-owned enterprises or they stay in the banking system. How much of it does it actually go into the real private sectors? How much does it go into lowering the cost of capital for these firms that desperately need them? That's the problem. That's part of this financial distortions that I've been talking about. Very good. Let's see what we get some uh, questions from the ground floor. There was one there in the middle. And hi, I'm going to ask two questions. The first one is about the opinion that we are repeating 2008. And it's from the, um, George Soros in the Economic World Forum recently. And uh, he said the difference is the source of the previous financial crisis was America. And now the source may be the China. It's about the Chinese deflation. How do you respect to this um, opinion? And the second question is about the Chinese stock market. And as you mentioned, the, there is no um, clear signal that showed the uh, um, growth rate is relate, related to the stock market in China and in India. I just want to know, uh, ask, is that the co- is that the common factor in like an emerging market in China and India? As you put emphasis in your presentation, thanks. Just just pass the microphone to the lady in front of you. Perfect. Um, so, my. My question is really around, is there anything that the rest of the world can do to help China um, as, they, <laughs> as they work through these series of challenges, or is this really a domestic problem that has to be solved at home? Excellent question. And uh, the young man here in front. Um, thank you for sharing us, with us. Um, my question is, will you briefly comment on uh, the effect of a government with tighter control, and will it be in favor of us finding social values you mentioned, preventing social decay, and promoting economic growth? Um, my second question is, um, will you discuss briefly how the new child policy in China will have an impact on economic growth? Thank you. Um. Okay, um, so stock market correlation, uh, well, I, I, I pointed out that there were really only two countries that displayed that, and that was China and India, and there were actually many other developing countries like Brazil, like, uh, you know, Turkey, that showed more normal-looking, you know, stock market performance. So I think this is pretty, pretty abnormal, even uh, among, for, for a developing country. Um, 
coming back to Soros, I think, see, the problem is that, you know, when someone calls the financial crisis for a long period of time and, you know, once they get it right, then, you know, they make world fame and, you know, they make a living out of that. And so, there, there, you know, some people have, like I was saying, uh, you know, have a living calling for the collapse of China, right? They've been calling for it since the mid-1990s. There'll always be dissension in the views. Now, I think the question is, it's not, if you just look at just pure macro numbers, you know, in terms of financial fragility or economic growth and just compare it across the countries, it doesn't show, it masks still a lot of the heterogeneity across these countries, right? So the government um, still has uh, what I believe to be sufficient uh, levers for now, for now, you know, um, to control the situation, including the capital outflows. A lot of it is about maintaining the confidence in the Chinese economy. Uh, but if growth really slows down significantly and um, the, China, the Chinese people lose confidence, then it's, the question is, do they really have, um, will they be able to manage the situation? And that is not very clear. But I think for now, at least inside China, the view is that uh, everything is still uh, under control. So we'll see how Kyle Bass and Soros do. Right? Um, uh, England and China, uh, the UK and China are still very different in that respect. Um, in terms of uh, this excellent question of how the world uh, can help, thank you for that question. First of all, the other way around, China can help substantially the world just by, you know, calming down a little bit, right? Um, it's funny that the stock market around the world react more to China's worries about China than the Fed, uh, the Fed hike. So uh, that's actually, I don't really know why, but uh, China's becoming more important. Um, it's funny because, uh, you know, in 1997 when I first went to the U.S. and I was only 14, I went as a Chinese exchange student. It's really quite extraordinary uh, what people were talking about in terms of China then. Um, when they saw me, all they wanted to ask me was Tiananmen Square and Tibet. <laughs> Those were the two only things that they saw me. I'm Chinese. Okay, these are the only two things that uh, that I want to talk to you about. And now, um, you know, China's moving markets, which is really, from my own personal experience, uh, you know, quite extraordinary. Um, I think, really, coming back more seriously, it's really about, I think, this kind of uh, the social values and the moral compass, right? What is China's moral compass? I'm not sure there's really one right now. It used to be Confucian values, but, you know, over time that was eroded, the erosion of many kind of values because of a lack of religion, because, you know, the Cultural Revolution, all of these things. And I think this is not something that I'm kind of unwilling to talk about because I think everyone in China who lives there understands that. Right? They understand on a micro level, but do they understand it on the aggregate level? Is there education resources devoted to kind of regaining this Chinese ethos, whatever it might be? It probably won't take the form of a religion, but what, what can it be? Right? But this kind of awareness that um, social decay is a big problem, bringing that awareness is already something that the world can do for China. And this is why I put this speech in the very end to make sure that that is at least on the top of the agenda. Um, 
Uh, the two children policy uh, and economic growth, I think that there will be an impact. At least this is coming from my own research. We found that the one-child policy, um, because of less spending on children, because of the less, uh, a more need of the, 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 the parents to save for themselves, have you know driven a lot of the Chinese savings. So with two children, I think that uh, in the medium term, there will be a, um, an increase in consumption. Because right now, if you look at the urban households, an average urban household spends about 25% of their total spending on educating one child. 25%, a quarter of your spending goes on to educating one child. Now, are you really going to double that when you have two children? Probably not, you know. You know, your children, your parents are going to like you less once you have a sibling. <laughs> um, I'm an only child, by the way, so... Um, but, but, you know, but that would substantially increase uh, household expenditures at the very least, right? And parents probably feel a little bit safer, they, they feel it's less risky to have more children than to have one, and they probably need to save less. So I think, um, I think there's some studies in economics that have shown that with uh, baby booms, you know, certain, certain kind of stocks do really well, like toys and bicycles and books. You know? So maybe it's, it's time that we go and uh, invest in these things uh, in China. More? All right. Yeah. Next round. <laughs> I only see men raising their hand. Oh, not quite. This, this lady over there, let's start over there. The two at the back. So you started your speech with a joke about Donald Trump, so I'm just wondering um, <laughs> so I'm just wondering what you think of how the 2016 presidential election is going to affect the relations between the Chinese economy and the U.S., given how interdependent they are. Just, just pass the microphone to the girl behind you. Yes, go ahead. And then, and then the one over uh, thanks for your presentation, Dr. Jing. Uh, I'm wondering, in terms of an innovation-based economy, we do need some, you know, uh, very good people with very good advanced education. But right now in China, even with Tsinghua University and Peking University, we have a lot of, I won't say control, but we have a lot of res restrictions from CPC. And I don't think it, it is very helpful to build a, you know, good or um, world first class higher education. So do you think China needed to reform in terms of the advanced education sector to um, build our economy better? Thank you. Uh, could you define the social values that you say are missing? <laughs> one more? Wow, sure. The, the, the one over here in the front uh, is, is very keen. I think. <laughs> Uh, thank you for the speech. And uh, my question is that uh, you have mentioned the financial stock uh, problem, but I think one thing is about the portfolio index you use. I think mainly you use the Shanghai uh, Securities Index, right? If not wrong. But I think uh, this is mainly uh, the main part of this is about the uh, is selected for this uh, state-owned company, which means a lot of this could not actually reflect the whole financial uh, especially the stock market, how this performance, because most of these good private-owned companies are not listed in this index. So uh, if you look deep into this kind of private uh, enterprise, actually they have performed quite well with this kind of economic boom in the past few decades. Uh, so I'll just, this is the first question. And another question is about uh, the recent problem about the uh, free speech, like we can see a lot of clampdown on this uh, private uh, individual 
freedom to speak like the recent uh, the clampdown of Ren Zhichang's Weibo. So, yeah, I think uh, basically this might be a kind of another, if you push a little bit, might be, will this be another kind of Tiananmen Square event, something like that. Thank you. You guys are a tough audience. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I knew I would get in trouble by mentioning Donald Trump, but it's virtually impossible not to mention Donald Trump <laughs> in every single gathering. So, um, what do I think about uh, with relation? I mean, it's 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 hard to say. What uh, you know? I I think that uh, it's true that in every presidential election, there's China bashing. There's nothing unusual about that, right? Um, I would be worried uh, if uh, Trump is the type of winner, kind of uh, A-type uh, kind of person that thinks you know you have to win over China to to um, uh, to deal with China. That I would be worried, but at the same time, you know, he's a businessman. So how this is going to really transpire once these people step on stage, it's it's really hard to predict. Um, but you know, there's you know there's significant discussion about the U.S. elections even in China. Um, with uh, promoting innovation through higher education, I agree that higher education is very important, but actually even more important is kind of the attitude, the attitude towards uh, education that I find most uh, troubling among students and also among academics. The attitude right now is you know, to get a good job or to study abroad or whatever it is. And among academics, it's a lot about short shortcuts, you know, achieving. A lot of, a lot of these university professors are sitting on major boards. And um, once the anti-corruption campaign kicked in and they, you know, limited the board members, they quit. They quit academia and they, they you know, they went into the private sector. So it's, it's not clear even, you know, before the institutional sense of the education system that the incentives and the right attitudes towards education is there to promote a more healthy environment, but I absolutely agree that it is clear. Education is part of the Confucian values, so at least China we have a fundamental, um, we have the fundamentals, but um, in terms of what you were mentioning, um, I think there is, uh, there's slightly now more of a control on what gets taught and uh, the kind of the biases that are inherent, and that is worrying, I have to say. That is definitely worrying. Um, although I have to say that, you know, Academic works that are objective, that are not explicitly saying let's overthrow the government, um, tends to be, you know, accepted. So I haven't personally felt, even though I work a lot in China, uh, these kind of restrictions. Um, <clears throat> what are the social values that are lacking in China? Well, I can tell you a million strange stories right now in, in, that's going on in China, and I, I think that many people would agree, um, just reading this, the various very kind of strange things that are happening on the daily lives uh, in China. I think it would be a mistake to think that corruption is just really about the central government or the government officials. No, corruption is everywhere. Corruption is in every stratum of society from the schools, from the hospital to the hospitals to any business enterprises. You know, if you don't pay your teacher some good bribes, your kids get moved back a few rows, and then you understand, <laughs> you understand why they're getting moved back, and then, and then things get resolved. Um, if you go to hospitals, you have your normal fees, but if you don't pay bribes, they might punish you. you know, I, these kind of things happen all the time. Youth suicides are extremely high, you know, People um, commit suicide at 13. If their mom has a second child, they commit suicide. If they can't agree with their parents what major to take in universities, it's not normal. It's not normal, and this is actually very pervasive. 
Um, with the stock market uh, performance, actually, it's uh, you know it's it's calculated as a the whole stock market, uh, you know, including the Shenzhen Hong Kong index. So it's not just the Shanghai. They have collectively been the worst performing stock index. There's nothing. There's, that's a pretty robust fact. Um, Lastly, clamping down. Um, yes, I, I understand why people are concerned. Um, but I was, as I was saying, I think this government is trying to feel its way along. I mean, China, in China, it's pretty, it's pretty serious. There's, again, you know, there's a lot of social conflicts that are kind of mounting the social discontent, uh, dissension, uh, you know, within the party, outside of the party, and to push through these changes when there's such, you know, economic challenges. A lot of things are happening at once, so the government's reaction is to tighten uh, tighten control. I don't see this as a necessarily a permanent thing, but I see this as an adjustment period. Funnily enough, the 1990s were a period of extremely loose control, flourishing. You know, this is where our rock star Cui Jian started to you know sing in the Tiananmen Square, and you know the people were writing all kinds of very liberal ideals. Um, flourished. Um, that was in the 1990s, so it could potentially, hopefully, uh, come back. I think we have time for another round, and it's definitely. Oh my gosh! Look. <laughs> well, not so much over here, but I think everybody on the balcony wants to ask a question. Just, just start, start over there. The, the, the two people. Uh, hi. Thank you for the presentation. Um, I know there's one question. I actually have two questions. Um, the first one is you mentioned that you believe, um, at least for now, the government has enough levers to contain the economy. Um, and how long do you mean by now? Are we looking at three years, five years, or ten years? Um, and then the second question is I'd like to ask, what's your view on the government's willingness to lend huge amount of money or invest in their own terms in credit poor sovereigns like Argentina or South Africa instead of investing in its own economy and helping its own um, private sector. Just, just pass the microphone to the man. Yeah, let's go ahead. And, and try to limit to one question given how many people still want to ask a question. I was wondering what you thought about the implications for the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect and whether or not that will have any um, effects going forward on financial market reforms. Just, just pass the microphone to the middle. Just, uh, just. I, I was very interested on uh, your... No, no, go ahead. Go, it's okay, it's I was very interested um, to your identification of the misallocation of capital and then highlighting infrastructure and manufacturing. I, I actually thought that was a successful uh, a contributor to China's development. And then would you say that they're repeating uh, the same thing abroad with uh, one belt, one road, the setup of new development and AIIB? Because that seems to run against what you're recommending for financial uh, liberalization for more efficient capital allocation. And now pass the microphone to the middle. <laughs> Without somebody... Okay. <laughs> I, really Thank you. Prom- I really promised her. She, <laughs> no, no, go she, ahead. Go ahead. We, can, we can do all of them. <laughs> yeah. she, she was so keen. Um. <laughs> Thank oh, yeah. you. Um, one value that the Chinese government has been promoting is nationalism. And I wonder how that plays in the challenges of the Chinese economy. No, you can do more. You can do more. <laughs> okay, let me see. Do it. 
man on the, on the side over there. Okay. Uh, uh, my question Thank is... <laughs> he said the man, so... <laughs> just, go, 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 just go ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll be here till 11, I think. <laughs> the United States of America and many developed countries are supposed to have very strong and good institutions. And yet, the whole world was thrown into the economic crisis by the United States of America, you know? At the same time, if I look at what China has done in the past 30, 40 years, they have pulled out almost 490 to 500 million people out of poverty, and they've done it all on their own, without any, uh, any help from America or England or anybody else. At the same time, there is so much of foreign powers who have gone to Africa in helping them out, and that country, those countries are still mired in poverty. How do you explain that? <laughs> uh, the, the great thing about many questions is now I get to pick and choose my favorite. Um, levers, like I was saying, I think there are, there are um, levers now. You know, it, it's shown to be quite effective in terms of stopping the, the you know capital outflows, stopping uh, you know the loss of reserves, or not stopping, but redu you know the loss of re reserves recently has been smaller than uh, what people expected. Again, engaging you know every major state-owned banks to buy up. Um, uh, RMB offshore, etc., etc. So I think for now, China is, you know, is, is under control. But again, how long can that be sustained? Now, that answer really depends, unfortunately, on this, again, this very, it's not cheating, but it depends on economic growth, right? We had major problems in the 1990s with massive NPLs, but a lot of that was just absorbed when there was positive and good growth. So, um, that's just, you know, growth is a panacea to these economic malaise, and unfortunately there's no way to, to get around that. So it depends on, as I was showing uh, in the last slide, the room for optimism. There are sources of growth that can be tapped on. The question is whether uh, these reforms can be undertaken. Now, in terms of investment in foreign uh, countries, that's an interesting uh, question because for a long period of time, China ran a huge current account surplus, right? But a lot of it, it was invested in low-yielding U.S. treasuries plus the major U.S. dollar depreciation meant that a lot of these, uh, these you know, inherently savings of the Chinese household um, uh, was lost. So it's probably a good thing that uh, some of these funds are used to invest in more riskier, high-return assets, acquiring different assets abroad. Um, even the one belt, one road kind of concept, uh, which someone mentioned here, is also about kind of using some, some of this surplus external wealth to build infrastructure and to move it abroad. And, you know, when you talk about investing in their own country, this is what Japan did. Japan didn't really internationalize, and a lot of the funds were bottled inside the, the country and led to a great bubble. So I think that um, part of diversifying, uh, diversifying uh, you know, uh, risk, accumulating different kind of assets abroad, building infrastructure, promoting regional trade, as exemplified by, um, by these, uh, you know, new banks being developed, is a good thing. It's a good thing. At least, uh, you know, when CIC bought a major stake in Blackstone or Morgan Stanley right you know, before the crisis, a major debacle. I think they're doing a little bit better uh, by, by doing these other things. So I think, yeah, diversifying some of these external wealth abroad is, is a good thing. Um, and also, it's not that as if that China can put the money wherever it wants to. Everything gets cited as a threat to national security. 
you want to put it in, you know, this country, France says it's a threat to national security. So it's coming into more countries where uh, Chinese money is welcome, including this one. Uh, China's investing a lot in the UK infrastructure, for example. Um, the, uh, you know, the kind of growth model, I, I kind of said it, there is a distortion of growth model of promoting industries. Yes, it's, it's a very, very immediate, you know, kind of um, immediate way to attain high growth. So it's hard to say is it good or is it bad. The only thing I was mentioning is that it might have been pretty costly, but it's difficult to kind of estimate um, the cost of that. And it's, estimate, it's difficult to say whether that was the right strategy or not, but certainly it helped, you know, lift hundreds of millions of people um, out of poverty. But I think the enduring question uh, remains of you know how much of this growth is accrued uh, to Chinese households, um, uh, and and to take into account the costs associated with that. I know that you know African countries are now promoting industries, and uh, they are actually tapping into Chinese lessons in terms of how to build um, their industries. But you know, but China, uh, but hopefully not with uh, the associated costs. In terms of nationalism. Ooh, that's a difficult question. I mean, that's just part of the culture, part of the education, part of the pride to be part of the community. It's not even just nationalism. It's also part of the Confucian values from way before, to be belonging to part of uh, the community. Um, nationalism can be a little bit dangerous when it comes to dealings with Japan, but, uh, you know... <laughs> Is that funny? Um, but, you know, 400,000 students are going abroad and being educated every year. I mean, it's really hard to think that Chinese people are going to not be more open-minded when all of you are here, everyone's on the Internet, everyone imbibes information. Um, the new generation, our generation, you know, when, when we take power, that's going <laughs> to uh, be a major change. Um, the last question is the hardest. How do we explain why countries are rich and why countries are poor? I don't know. Institutions, um, institutions. Um, I was saying that in the beginning stages, you know, uh, building institutions take a really long time. There's also a lot of vested interests that could abuse institutions. Uh, what I was simply arguing is that for a period of time, China managed to grow, these firms managed to grow despite uh, good institutions, but there has to be a different phase, and the second phase is when you actually need to rely on a lot of productivity growth and innovation and competition. This is where innovation becomes more important. So I'd rather see this as more of a phase, and a, you know, different kind of phases to development than an absolute thing. Shall we do two more? Sure. I mean, there's, we, we have to stop really at eight, but since you guys are so keen, let's, let's go till the very last moment. Uh, the, the one in the back. Hello, uh, my name is Dee. Um, I would like to ask one question on the real estate bubble that you talked about. Uh, can you f further emphasize on the de development of the real estate bubble and uh, why it have, hasn't bursted so far? <laughs> then, was it the, the girl in the middle? Over here, the f f that's, that, that's okay too. Who has the best question? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So I just want to ask you about the QD2 that announced uh, in the last year that we know it's like six cities in China is going to, I mean, just open the limits about the tr personal transfer, which is like five, 50 grand US dollars per person per year. But due to, I think, in this year, it's going to be not only from, like, say, I mean, sir, the outbound investment from China has been quite, I mean, it's a fast speed going out abroad, and it will be like quite tight to transfer money for the personal, I mean, purpose outside China there. So what do you think about the trend, like, in future for the personal, like, investment outside China? Thank you. 
Just pass the microphone to the, and then this is the last question over here. The front, the girl in the white coat. Um, my question is also about capital control. Do you think there is a sign of China is tightening the capital control? Do you, do you think there is a, a dangerous that in, it will scare out the FDI in the future? So this, is, uh, this might be a dilemma if China want to sustain the exchange rate or become more capital control and maybe in the future there's no FDI will come to the country. Um, why hasn't the real estate bubble bursted? Good question. Um, well, first of all, you know, again, at the national level, there appears to be not really a clear uh, asset real estate bubble. There is more in, uh, in Beijing and Shanghai. Uh, let me point to the fact that, you know, the Chinese dream is to have everyone owns an apartment in, in the urban areas, right? I mean, every, every person living in the rural areas has to have an apartment in the cities, for their kids, for the you know access to healthcare, etc. So urbanization is only halfway done, and um, potentially one can argue that uh, there's still pent up demand in China. Now I once heard this interesting anecdote. I'm not sure if this is the right thing to use or not, but why do people say uh, poor kids' children make bigger clothes? Something like the real estate market in China. So these city governments, you know, once it's, you know, when before the city is developed, they just have really <laughs> this massive land, and you just build a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff, a lot of property, and it will eventually get uh, get filled up. Now that might explain um, some part of China, but I think that the kind of anecdotes for these ghost cities is just purely anecdote, and they're not systematic evidence that uh, a lot of these um, properties are just purely vacant, but. You know, I think that uh, the answer is that, uh, you know, there's still pent-up demand and also that there's just limited uh, investment vehicles, so they still put in some of the uh, resources into the real estate. Now, um, personal investment of personal money outside of China, now, it's true that if everyone, which has a quota of $50,000, can move it outside of China, then it's true that the reserves will be uh, wiped out in a matter of no time. Um, <coughs> I think that where this is where the Chinese government is, you know, could also loosen some of the restrictions on capital inflows. You talk about FDI, you know, loosening capital controls on the inflows, tightening a little bit on the outflows can temporarily uh, maintain, uh, you know, the, the 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 inflow balance. I think that in general, in in the end, capital account is going to liberalize. If you want to put your money outside because your parents are educating you here, they need to transfer some of their wealth, diversify their wealth. Fine, but there are also going to be a lot of money wanting to go into China too that are being restricted. So on net, what's going to happen in the short term versus medium term, it's, it's really hard to, uh, hard to say. So um, I think that answers the third question as well. Very good. So to conclude, I would like to thank all of you for coming and for being so eager to ask questions. And of course to thank... <laughs>